Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. 2 Corinthians, right after 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, that must be 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, sorry about that. Verses 3 through 9. Beginning now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you is verse 1. If you are watchers of the evening news, specifically NBC nightly news, then you are familiar with the man Lester Holt. Lester Holt has been in news forever, apparently, and because of that, he was given the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award for excellence in broadcasting or something like that. And as with most awards, he did an acceptance speech. And in his acceptance speech, it was, it's fairly long. You can find this in a million different places online because it's a very important thing for the news industry. He made the point right out of the gate that if you want to know something, if you want to know something that is true, if you want to know something that you can actually sink your teeth into, you only need one opinion. You only need one source. He says to have two or more sources or to even look at the exact opposite idea that you're looking for an answer is a waste of time. Equality of opinions, he says, is not appropriate in today's age. And the example that he gives of how this works is he said the sun sets in the west. And if you were to go out and speak to somebody about this fact, and they say, no, 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 the sun sets in the east, you only got to say, I'll meet you outside at about 7 o'clock tonight, and we'll see what direction it's going, and we can take these two opposite opinions and determine what is true by the scientific method, by empirical study. And Lester Holt says, no, 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 that, that's, we don't need to do that. That is a waste of time. We just need to find the correct source and listen to what that one single source is saying. And in doing that, we can understand what is true. And that is fine for things like which direction does the sun go down? Which direction is it traveling through the sky? And yes, I know that it is the earth's rotation. The sun is just sitting there and we're rotating. But the idea of the sun setting in the west has been around since people wrote about it for 5,000 years, the idea. And you can prove it every single night of your life if you want to. You can go out and see the sunset with a compass and see what direction it is. But if you try to apply this to thoughts of, say... uh, of of philosophy or religion or education, politics, economic, 
which car is better, which phone is better, these various things that are kind of based on historical opinion, the best way to do it and the biblical way to do it is to get multiple views and then go to Scripture and find out what it says. And that's why Proverbs itself says in one place, multiple counselors make somebody wise. In another place it says, there is wisdom in a myriad of counselors. We are supposed to be people as Americans and Christians who look at things and don't just turn on the TV. The first thing we hear, we say, yep, that's truth, and move on from that. We need to be, as it were, critical thinkers, even about the things of God. As we're reading through Scripture, we need to say, well, how do I know this is true? Uh, where else in Scripture does it say this? How is this being taught and how do I apply this? And if we look at how Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, we can see that. Now, I don't, I don't blame Lester Holt. I'm not here to just throw shade on Lester Holt and say he's a bad guy. He is reflecting modern society. He is reflecting what the average person believes, and that is we live in a post-truth world. Now, when I say post-truth world, I'm not saying there is no truth, because everybody that you ask about things that are true, they will, you know, you will talk about gravity or which direction the sun goes down, things like this. People will declare these things to be true, but in a post-truth world, truth no longer matters. Your truth is for you. My truth is for me. Back when I was growing up, and this was starting to occur in the 60s, it was called relative truth or situational ethics. Things are okay for you in this situ situation, but they're not okay for you in that situation. Or I can believe this certain thing, and you can believe this certain thing, and we both can be equal, and we both can be right, even though our personal truths are polar opposites. But that is the world we live in. And when you listen to people being interviewed, I listened to a Christian podcast where a guy goes on to college campuses and actually asks people about absolute truth and things like this. And nobody today, it seems, are willing to say that their truth applies to me. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you are going to hell. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are going to heaven. That is seen as my truth and not yours. And in doing that, you can have people believe all sorts of things about God. But Paul is talking about uh, the resurrection to the church at Corinth. The church of Corinth was a, was a rough church. It was a sinful church. It was a church that didn't seem to take God seriously. As we say, didn't fear God, didn't take God seriously. And so he's building a case about Christian behavior in the first 14 chapters, correcting some sort of ideas that they had wrong. 
And then when he gets to verse 15 and verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, it wasn't his idea. It wasn't something that he made up. He was actually taught it. He was taught it by scriptures. He was taught it by Christ on the road to Damascus. And he was taught it by the early church. We also understand that probably because Corinthians was written late, that he probably had access to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and was able to study them since Paul did not walk with Christ as a disciple when Christ was on this earth. He came later, as he states in 1 Corinthians 15. And so he talks about several parts of what we would call the gospel or Easter story. And he starts by saying, Christ died. Now, interestingly enough, I've never heard anybody who criticizes Christianity dispute this point. This point is pretty much a given. It is stipulated. People understand that Christ died, and many are even willing to say that he died on a cross, that Jesus Christ was some sort of historical figure, and he died on a cross, and that is acceptable. And so we can start with people when we're talking about what is true and what is not true, we can start with people with the fact that Christ died because it is the death of Christ when we say, what did Christ die for? It says that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. Christ died for cleansing of sin. And if you look at the steps of the Easter, the final week, Passion Week, the Easter story, if there is no death of Christ, if there is no Christ on a cross, if there is no shedding of the blood, then there is no forgiveness of sin. If Christ just died of old age and then was raised to the, from the dead, there would be no forgiveness of sin. It is the death of Christ. It is the shedding of the blood. It is the work on the cross that fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament and brought about forgiveness of sin, for there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. And so he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so Paul is not saying that this is just some sort of oral tradition or something that is passed around with notes in the synagogue or things of this nature. This is a fact that is defended by Scripture. And so the Scripture that he's talking about is the whole Old Testament. Paul was an Old Testament scholar. Paul knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He used it initially in his early life as a weapon against Christianity, proving Christianity to be wrong. Then when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he spent three years relearning the Old Testament, finding Christ everywhere. And so when Paul says it is accordance with the Scripture, he's bringing out a witness. And we can, if we want to research this, we can say, 
well, how is this true? Or if he's saying it's in the scriptures, perhaps he's even saying, go look it up, go find it. And I can get a concordance and I can get a topical Bible and I can read through the Old Testament and I can find every prophecy, every instance that talked about the death of Christ, either alluding to it as part of a sacrifice system or speaking directly like Isaiah 53, for example, which is about the life and death of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is not saying take his word for it. Paul is saying do some research. Because Christ died for the sins of the world, for our sins, this also leads us to understand that Christ was sinless. A sinner cannot die for somebody else's sins. A sinner, actually, in God's economy, cannot even die for their own sins. It means that we are sinful. It means that we have sins. Christ died for our sins. That means we have sins, and it means that we cannot fix it on our own. None of us can figure out how to get to heaven on our own apart from the work of Christ. Then it says he was buried, and no disagreement there, and then you get to the rubber meets the road, the part that the world denies, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. When we look at the timing of the life of Jesus, he was crucified on Friday morning. He was taken off the cross Friday afternoon. He was in the tomb by Friday evening before the sun came down, setting in the west, before the sun came down, he was in the tomb. That was Jewish law because of Passover, because of the special Sabbath that was associated with Passover. And so he was in the tomb all night Friday, all day Saturday, and then Sunday about sunup, before the sun came up, he resurrected from the dead. In Jewish reckoning, part of a day is the day. So he was three days in the tomb that is likened to three days Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Jesus did that himself. And so we have on the third day, we have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he was raised from the dead in accordance with Scripture. And once again, Paul brings about Scripture, the Old Testament, the Gospels, the historical evidence of Jesus Christ. His whole basis for the gospel of Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead, he says, is found throughout the Old Testament. We also know that it is found throughout. It is the basis for the New Testament. It is the basis for our belief and our faith is that Christ died was in a tomb, was actually, honest to goodness, truly die. He didn't just swoon or pass out. He actually died, and then he was raised from the dead. Paul then goes into eyewitness accounts, and eyewitness accounts in addition to Scripture. So you have Scripture telling the prophecies, telling the story. You then have eyewitness people who saw Christ walking around after the resurrection. That is the proof that Paul is going for, that you actually have people. He doesn't want people who just witnessed the crucifixion. He doesn't want people who just saw Jesus being put in the tomb. He wants people who witnessed 
Jesus walking around after the resurrection for, we know because of Scripture, 40 days. He walked around until Pentecost on the 50th day. And so who saw Jesus? First he, saw, he said Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Peter, if you remember at the story when they were uh, fishing and Jesus was on the shore and they said, it's the Lord, and Peter jumped in the water. And Jesus took Peter aside and for three times asked him if he loved him Many people believe it's because Peter denied Christ three times, so he had to be restored three times. Peter saw him. And if you were able to find Peter, who was alive during the writing of the letters to the Corinthians, you could talk to him, and you could ask him, and you could debate him, and you could say, what did you see? What was Jesus like? What did he say? And you have an eyewitness who not only saw Jesus way over there, but actually talked to him very intimately, probably touched him, probably hugged him after he was restored. And this is something that is proof that Jesus was walking around. And then he appeared to the twelve. He appeared to the twelve. The twelve is a a nickname, is a euphemistic nickname of the apostles. When Jesus first appeared in the upper room, there was only 10 of them because Judas had already gone and hung himself. And uh, Thomas was not there because he did not believe. And so the set of people are known as the 12, even though 10 were only there. Jesus did come at another time when Thomas was there and you had 11 But the set of disciples is known as the Twelve, which is why they cast lots to replace Judas after Pentecost and after those sorts of events happened because they saw twelve disciples as a God-chosen number. And so they wanted to refill it. Then the big one, it says... Uh, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And you're thinking, wow, 500. That is some sort of group hypnosis. Well, people like David Copperfield, you know, the guy who makes the Statue of Liberty disappear and stuff like that. He does the big stuff. He's been actually asked by people who know Scripture, could he grab 500 people off the street, take them somewhere, and fool them so completely that they will believe what they saw until the day they die. And what he said was, the most he ever did it to was 24. And that was for making the Statue of Liberty disappear. There was 24 people in his audience, and he could only control the vision and he could only control the location for 24 people, for twice the number of disciples. He said he couldn't do it to 500. And the call has gone out to every mind reader, every illusionist, every magician. What's the biggest crowd that you fooled? And they kept that, I believe this to be true, thought, until the day they died. 
And nobody has said they can do it with 500 random people off the street. That it, ha it takes such preparation for that big of a number. And so as we read scripture, that is, some, that is an obstacle that cannot be gotten over by people who uh, study hypnosis and who study fooling people. The idea that and you gotta, they weren't in a room. There was no real room big enough for 500 back then. They were probably on a hillside like the uh, Sermon on the Mount. It was probably a mass teaching. There was probably 500 people in the audience and Jesus taught them. And they believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so what does Paul say? I'm not going to tell you who any of these people are. He says, no, many, most are still alive. Go find them. Go talk to them. Quiz them. Try to disprove what they saw. He is telling you to test this claim. He says, some have died, so you have a short window to find these people. But he's, he's saying these people are known. And my guess is, if you went to the, the pub or the synagogue or wherever you gathered, the names of these people that you knew that were part of the 500 would come up time again and again and again. And I'm sure many believed because of what their friends saw, because of what their family saw, because they believed. And so these are evidences that Paul is putting out and saying, study it, look at it, find these people, look at Scripture, and see if you can prove it wrong. But he believes it will increase your faith. Then he says, James, James here is the half-brother of Jesus. When Jesus first started his ministry, James was against him. James did not believe he was the Messiah. Jesus, James did not believe he was the Son of God. He was the son, James was, of Mary and Joseph. Well, Jesus was just the son of Mary and God. And so to put him in the list is to say, here's somebody who said no but now believes. He's saying here's somebody who got converted by seeing the risen Christ. He then goes into uh, uh, himself, and he calls himself untimely born. Uh, that is a phrase that only exists in this spot in the New Testament. It doesn't exist anywhere else. It is used to mean a premature baby or even a miscarriage. It means somebody improperly born. And how was Paul born again? He was on the way to arrest Christians and to put them in jail and to possibly even torture them and kill them for believing in Christ. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared and knocked him over, knocked him to the ground. And for three days, he was blind because of that event. And he's saying that God came to him. He wasn't searching God. He wasn't searching Jesus. That God came to him and picked him. And so he's saying he was a late bloomer. That he is an apostle chosen by God. He is also saying in this phrase, he is giving the idea that he is the last apostle. That he is the last apostle picked by Jesus. 
And so what is the truth of all this? Christianity is not a, you receive it on blast and you just have to blindly believe it. People who have studied Christianity say that it is not a leap of faith, that it is not a blind leap of faith, that it is not going from normalcy to something that you can't even figure out, you can't even understand. The way Christianity is presented is first it's presented in the Bible. And anybody, anybody in the United States and in most other places, anybody can get a Bible in their own language and read through it and study it and underline things and make arrows and make question marks and use it as a study book of who Christ is and what Christianity is all about. Because of that, we offer Christianity to everybody. And people say, well, I don't know. We give them the Gospel of John. I have knocked on most of the doors around this church. And I have given people Gospels of John. I have given people Gospel tracts. My belief is, if they read Scripture, the Holy Spirit will work in them. And so Christianity is, to coin a phrase, an open book. We don't hide things. We don't have secret handshakes. We don't have secrets. We tell everybody, give Bibles to anybody, and let God work. And so the idea that Christ lived a sinless, perfect life is clearly taught throughout Scripture that Christ was convicted and died for the sins of the world is clear and taught throughout Scripture. And that on the third day, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And what that signified was a vindication of his work on the cross. That God the Father was saying, I accept your payment. That God the Father was saying, well done. I, I accept it. It worked people can now be saved like us. And so we can talk about truth and we can talk about other religions and we can talk about where truth comes from. But when it comes to learning about God, learning about Jesus Christ and learning how to be saved, the only place we go is not nightly news. It is the Bible. It is the Word of God. We need to be in this. We need to have our face and our mind and our nose to the grindstone in this book. And only by knowing this book can we know the truth about God and the truth about Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we just praise you that there is a book that we can learn about you from. And that there is a book in heaven that our name is written called the Lamb's Book of Life. Lord, we praise you for this and ask your blessing upon this time of communion. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.